Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Titus. I uh, started a new series last week. We're going to be looking at the short letter of Titus in the New Testament. And it's about building a disciple-making church. Um, you know, that's always been a prayer and a passion of mine and a pursuit is I want to be part of a church that is actively, obediently making disciples of Jesus Christ. And when you look at the book of Titus, uh, it's a very short letter, very, very practical. I believe that Paul shows us how to build a disciple-making church. Matter of fact, I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul said, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it, but each one is to be careful how he builds. In other words, uh, Paul said he was a skilled master builder. He knew how to share the gospel. He knew how to plant churches. He knew how to develop leaders. And God used him to expand the movement of Christianity throughout the then known world of the Roman Empire. Paul, he was a missionary. He was a church planner. He was a preacher. He was a teacher. He was an apostle. He knew what he was doing. And here, when you look at this letter to Titus, we see that Paul basically opens up his playbook and says to Titus, a young minister, Uh, of the gospel, here's what you need to do in order to build a disciple-making church. And he sent him to Crete, an island uh, that we talked about last week, about uh, two two and a half times, I believe, the size of Long Island. But the point is this, he went to Crete, and you'll find out here in a minute that if you can succeed there, you can succeed anywhere. So let's look for a moment. I love this quote from Max Dupree. He says, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And that's exactly what Paul did for Titus. I want you to understand the leadership challenge that Titus faced. Uh, Titus went to Crete to develop leaders and to confront false teaching. Let's look at that for just a moment. He went to develop leaders. In our passage today, Titus 1, we'll pick up in verse 5. Paul lets us know the reason why he left uh, Titus in Crete. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. His job was to develop leaders there on the island of Crete so that when he left, there would be people in place to lead the the, the congregation forward so that they knew exactly what to do. He had to develop leaders. But not only that, that would be a fun job. There was more to it that made it a tough job. He also had to confront false teaching. Look, if you will, in verse 10. There in verse 10, uh, Paul says plainly to Titus, For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. So there is a group of people that are very vocal, and I would say in my mind, since they're uh, of the circumcision party, they're probably very legalistic, 
and they're ruining people's faith because they're bringing law into the mix with faith and saying, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. If you don't think legalistic uh, uh, is, is something that can affect the church, I, I know a friend one time that uh, went up north to a church that he was trying to help, and um, he discovered that their, um, you know, that their, uh, their song leader was required to say the hymn two times before he sang it. And they enforced that. I mean, they were very legalistic. They took a preference and they made it law. Uh, you and I need to be able to realize that we can recognize false teaching when we see it. Paul said to Titus, he said, look, he said, there are rebellious people. They're full of empty talk and deception and they need to be silenced. They're ruining all these households. And so he had to develop leaders, and he had to confront false teaching. And if that's not enough, look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says, One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and he says this testimony is true. In other words, oh, by the way, Titus, you are on the island of Crete, and they don't really have a very good reputation. One of their very own said, they're always liars. If their lips are moving, they might be lying, okay? They are evil beasts. They're brutal. They're in, they're, it's all about them, and, and then they're lazy gluttons. Now, I don't know about you, but if you compare Crete's culture to American culture today, are there parallels? I mean, when it talks about being always liars... We live in an information age now where constantly you have to filter what you're hearing and seeing. Is it misinformation? Is it disinformation? Is it truth? Is it lie? Is it fake news? See, we have all of these descriptive terms uh, to, to just illustrate that you have to really pay attention to what you're seeing and what you're listening to. You know, we look at Crete here and they're evil beasts. And yet, how many times do we question people when they do something kind for us? You know, we wonder, huh, do they have ulterior motives? You know, when we go out into the culture today and we seek to do uh, servant evangelism where you just simply do things for people just because you want to show God's love, and then they go, why are you doing this? Well, you can always share because we love Jesus and we want to share that with you. But sometimes you're, you're suspicious because people want to know, why are you really doing this? Uh, and then, of course, lazy gluttons. You know, when it comes to uh, gluttony, it's never enough. It's never enough. And we live in a culture today that no matter what the fix is, it's never enough. It's never enough. We want more and more and more. Now, you might realize now, as a leader, you have to define reality. And Paul has defined reality for Titus. Look, I'm sending you to Crete. It's a tough place to minister. It's a tough place to serve. I want you to develop leaders, and I want you to confront false teaching, and I want you to understand what you're getting yourself into. It reminds me of Andrew Carnegie. Maybe you've heard his story years ago, one of the wealthiest men in America. He came from Scotland as a boy. He had a variety of odd jobs, and eventually he worked up to uh, being the owner of the largest steel manufacturer in the United States. At one point in time, Andrew Carnegie had 43 millionaires working for him. And that says a lot going back in time in that day and age. In those days, a millionaire was a rare person. And a reporter asked Andrew Carnegie, uh, said, um, 
how did you hire 43 millionaires? And he said, I didn't. He says, they worked for me and I made them millionaires. So the reporter asked again, he said, well, how did you develop these men so that they become so, so valuable to you and your company? And Carnegie's uh, answer was classic. He says, I develop men the same way gold is mine. He says, when gold is mine, you have to remove several tons of dirt to find the gold. And he says, when you develop people, you're not looking for dirt. You're looking for gold. Think about that for a moment. When you develop people, you're not looking for dirt. I mean, there's enough of that around, is there not? But you're looking for gold. And that reminded me of a scripture in 1 Peter where Peter wrote in his letter, you're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials so that the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, our salvation, one of these days, it'll be revealed that we know the Lord and we will become like Him. And the proven character of our faith that He's been mining and working and developing in our lives to where we become more like Jesus, the longer we walk with Him, the more we know Him, it will be revealed. God is developing His people. He's not looking for dirt. He's looking for gold. And He's developing and growing you in your faith so that you can be all that He wants you to be. Looking for proven character, that is how you identify leaders, is you look for proven character. I'm reminded of a friend. His name is Roy. Years ago at the church where Nancy and I met, they had a Hispanic ministry. And I remember when Roy got saved. And, uh, you know, he had come from a religious background. A lot of Hispanics predominantly are, are, are Catholic. And so he had that background, but he had never been saved. He didn't know Jesus as Lord personally. And Roy got saved. And he was at everything. And he was like a sponge. I mean, a prayer meeting, a Bible study, it didn't matter. A worship service, he was there and he was like a sponge. And shortly after his salvation, he was called uh, to preach. And I've never seen a man grow like he did. In one year's time, Roy had grown so much in the Lord that he, he grew more than what most people grow in a decade. Because he was simply hungry for God and, and growing closer in his relationship with him. Why do I say that? Because Paul had uh, sent Titus to Crete. And, you know, the people, the Christians, had a reputation. And yet Paul is absolutely confident in God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the power of God and the salvation at work in those who believe. And he believes that the gospel can change their hearts transform their lives and even in a short period of time they can they can demonstrate to the world how they've been changed and out of that group of people you can begin to pick and develop leaders in the church it's what keeps me going at night i love what paul said to the philippians i'm sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of christ and that is absolutely right now today we're going to dive into 
uh, Titus chapter 1. I love preaching the Word of God. I love preaching a book in the Scriptures. I love going book by book, verse by verse. I don't do it all the time. Actually, I try to preach through a couple of books each year, and the rest of the time is topical because I like variety. But I love going to the Bible and going through the Bible. And when you do that, sometimes you'll preach on things that, well, ordinarily you wouldn't preach on. Or you, you sometimes you have to deal with issues or topics that come up that normally you wouldn't even dare to grab that tiger by the tail. But that's what happens when you go through the Word of God. And so this morning in uh, Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, I'm going to call this uh, message Appointing Elders in the Church. And so what does that mean? To some of you, you'll go, I don't even know what that is. What is an elder? Let's ask that question. What is an elder? Okay. Um, most people go, well, that's a term for older people. And then we have to haggle on the age, right? Is it, is it 65? Is it 55? Don't anybody look at me. Uh, but you, you get the idea, right? But that's not what this is about. When you read the word elder in the New Testament, it's not talking about an older person. It's talking about an office of leadership in the church. And when you look at it, you'll see the term elder, overseer or bishop, pastor, shepherd. And they're all used interchangeably to refer to the same office of leadership in the church. Now, I will say this, the term pastor, uh, the English word pastor in the New Testament, you're only going to find like once, like Ephesians 4, I believe. Uh, you're just not going to find many uh, r references to that. You'll see the term shepherd more. You'll see overseer a little bit, bishop a little bit, but the predominant word you see is elder, okay? And so what is an elder? It's an office of leadership in the church. Now, a little bit background about the elders, because when I first read this in Scripture, I began to go, well... If it's an office in Scripture, what does that mean? And I had to do my research, and so I began to do it. Uh, here's the background to the office of elder in the Bible. First of all, you go to the Old Testament. Now, to make this short and sweet, I'm going to give you one key passage. In Numbers 11, verse 16, the Bible says, The Lord answered Moses, Bring me 70 men from Israel, known to you as elders, and officers of the people, take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. And then I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take some of the spirit who is on you and put the spirit on them. And they will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it by yourself. Now, if you go back and you look at Moses' uh, life and his ministry of leading God's people, it was Moses... And he did everything. You remember his father-in-law, Jephro, came and watched him one day. And he was sun up to sundown. And all the people came to Moses. Every, anything that had to be done, everybody came to Moses. And finally, Jethro, his father-in-law, said, uh, Moses, what you're doing is not wise. You need to find, you know, able men. And you need to delegate your responsibility and some of your authority. And if they can handle a thousand, let them handle a thousand. If they can handle a hundred, let them handle a hundred. If they can handle ten, well, let them handle ten. And you handle the ones that they don't know how to handle. And, and he did that and it worked. But this is a little different from that. Here, as a spiritual leader of God's people, the Lord told Moses, you bring 70 men that are elders, they're officers of the people, and you meet there with me, and I will put my spirit that's on you, and I will put it on them, and they'll help you share the load and share the burden so you won't have to bear it by yourself. That's the Old Testament 
uh, background foundation of elders. Then we fast forward to the New Testament and we look at the early church. I'm going to give you a couple here real fast. In Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 15, if you remember, there was a, a big deal at the time. A lot of Gentiles had heard the gospel and they got saved. And the Jewish believers in the church were saying, they're different from us. We're circumcised. They're not. We think they need to be circumcised. And the issue became, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? It was a gospel issue. It was a salvation issue. And so Paul and his missions team and, and others, they went to the church in Jerusalem to settle that issue. And in Acts 15, beginning in verse 4, it says, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders. Do you see that? And they reported all that God had done with them. And it says, But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And then the Bible says in verse 6, The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. I think it's very interesting that this big of an issue came up early in the life of the early church as the gospel went out of Jerusalem, it went out of Judea, and it broke the Gentile barrier, and now they're all meeting at headquarters in Jerusalem, and when they get the decision makers in the room, it's not just the apostles, it's the apostles and the elders. What elders? The elders of the Jerusalem church. So you had elders in the Old Testament. You had elders in the first church in Jerusalem. And then look at Acts 14. In Acts 14, you'll remember that Paul went on mission trips and he shared the gospel. He planted churches. And you know what else he did? He appointed elders. Look, if you will, in Acts 14, verse 21. In Acts 14, 21, after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, it's very interesting there because the practice, the custom of Paul, who's a master builder, he knew how to share the gospel, he knew how to plant churches, he knew how to develop leaders. Wherever he went, he appointed elders in every church. And then we come back to our text in Titus 1.5 where he leads, leads Titus on the island of Crete to appoint elders in every town. The, the thing there that should surprise you if you're unfamiliar with this teaching inscription is it's a plurality. It's elders with an S. It's more than one. Okay, it's more than one. Now let's go on to our background about elders. You have it in the Old Testament. You have it in the early church. And then you might say, well, maybe that was just a Jewish thing. Well, let's fast forward to the very end of the Bible. The book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. Look what it says in verse 2. John is talking. He says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it around the throne. Or it says the one... The one seated uh, there had the appearance of jasper and a Canadian stone and a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounding the throne. And then verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. 
So when you begin to study, and this is what I want you to think about here, when you begin to study what the Bible says about elders, realize the breadth of it as well as the depth of it. The breadth of it is, in the Old Testament, Israel had elders. In the New Testament, the very first church, Jerusalem, had elders. And when Paul went on mission journeys and he shared the gospel and he planted churches and he developed leaders, he appointed elders in every town, elders in every church. And then in Revelation, when we all get to heaven someday, there's going to be 24 elders around the throne of God. You just can't escape that it's part of it. So once you go, okay, I guess elders are biblical, then you have to ask the question, because I know what you're thinking. Is that Baptist? Right? Is that Baptist? I remember the first time I ever heard this concept of quite a few years ago, I encountered it, and I was like, is that Baptist? How come I haven't heard of that? What in the world? Is, what, what is this? And so I had to, again, I had to do some research. And I tell you what, history tells us a whole lot. You know, our Baptist faith and message, we're in the third rendition of it. It came out in 2000. The first rendition or edition of the Baptist faith and message was in 1925. And here's what it says about the church. And I'll just zero in on the part here. It says, uh, in reference to the church, it says its scriptural officers are bishops or elders and deacons. That's what it says. And then when you fast forward to 1963, when it was revised under the leadership of Herschel Hobbes, they changed it to its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. Well, I already said that pastor, elder, overseer, those terms are interchangeably, and yet it's still plural. Uh, Herschel Hobbes says there's the office of bishop, elder, or pastor, and in the New Testament, these titles refer to the same office. And then in the 2000 edition, under the leadership of Adrian Rogers, it continues and says its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. I love what Brother Adrian Rogers says. He says an elder speaks of maturity that exceeds the flock because they're an example. Shepherd speaks of ministry that feeds the flock because they've got to be able to be able to teach. And then bishop speaks of management that leads the flock because they're an overseer. So you might say elder, deacon, what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. An elder is a leader, a deacon is a servant. The very term deacon literally means servant. An elder is a leader. An elder must be able to teach. A deacon is not required to. We have deacons that do teach, but biblically, scripturally, they're not required to because that's not a requirement for a deacon in scripture. But for an elder, it is. So then we look and say, well, what are the qualifications are for an elder? And then we'll finish verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. So let's look at this very quickly. What are the qualifications for an elder? I'm going to say four things. Look at their testimony. Let me jump to verse 9. Holding to the faithful message as taught. When you are looking at a leader in the church, and particularly an elder, you want to know their testimony. I love the story that uh, I heard once years ago about a guy named Joe who was an alcoholic. And he would go to an inner city uh, mission where they had a food bank. And he got his needs met there. And over time, he got exposed to God's people. And he, he heard the gospel. And over time, 
Joe got radically saved. And as a result of being radically saved, he had a heart to show that love to other people, just like he had been a, a drunken alcoholic for years. So he began to serve in this downtown inner street ministry. And Joe was always there. He always had a smile on his face. Uh, even when the drunks came in and if they got sick, he cleaned it up. He always took care of the bathrooms. Like there was no job, no task beneath Joe because he loved the Lord and he loved people and he just showed up to serve and he had a smile on his face. And one time they were having an evangelistic message there. Someone came in. Uh, Joe was out of town and they began to preach the gospel and then they offered uh, an invitation to anyone who wanted to respond. And as they looked across the room with a lot of these men that looked very sullen and had drooped heads, one of them looked up and came down and he kneeled and he began to cry out, God, I want you to change me and make me like Joe. God, I want you to change me and make me like Joe. And the speaker said, Sir, don't you mean you want God to change you and make you like Jesus? And you know what the guy said? He says, is he like Joe? You think about that. When it comes to looking at someone's integrity, you want to see Jesus in them. It's not about their image. It's not about you know the kind of person you think they are or how they carry themselves. Do you see Jesus in them? What's their testimony? Do you see the change that Christ has made in their life? That's what I'm talking about. Examine their testimony. Number two, look at their integrity. Look, if you will, in verse 7. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. Uh, then he fleshes that out. Not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. Here, he gives us an idea of what integrity looks like. There are certain qualities that can disqualify you. You don't want uh, an arrogant person because they'll never be humble and they'll never be teachable and they won't be corrected. You don't want a hothead, a hot-tempered person. The first, uh, this is free, a quick story for you. Uh, Herman, my first church I ever pastored, I was like 23 years old. And uh, they were looking for somebody and um, they, they asked me to come some Sunday and preach, and I did. And I uh, preached that Sunday morning, that Sunday night, and when I was fixing to leave, they said, can you come back next week? And I said, sure. So I went back next week, and I preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, and the guy looked at me, Danny, and he says, consider this your church. Okay, that was Faxon. In, between the, in the land between the lakes area, very remote uh, area, wonderful people, and they didn't have a pastor, we'll just consider this your church. And I'm like, okay. Been there about a month, and I went back to the guy, and I'm like, uh, so are y'all calling me as pastor? You know, what, you know what, how's this work? And he goes, we're working on that. And I go, well, what do you mean? I'm kind of confused. And he goes, well, I'm just going to be honest with you. Of course, there are about 50 people. He says, we had a guy about two months before you came, he professed faith in Christ, and we don't have many men in the church. We threw him on a committee. He's on the nominating committee. He's on the search committee. 
and when you first came, the, 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 the ladies and stuff, they really liked you, and they had a meeting, when can we call Brother Corey the pastor? And they didn't ask what he thought. And he threw down. He was a hothead. He was a hothead. And so they literally had to wait till the guy got so mad he just left the church, and then they called me 100%. Okay? The only time I got a 100% vote, it's been downhill ever since, huh? <laughs> But seriously, but seriously, the, you see here the importance of making sure that when you uh, select leaders that they aren't arrogant, they're not hot-tempered, they're not an excessive drinker, they're not a bully, and they're not greedy for money. On, on, on the contrary, they're known for these uh, positive qualities. They're hospitable, they love what's good, they're sensible, they're righteous, they're holy, they're self-controlled. I love what Adrian Rogers said. He said, you may not be sinless, and none of us are except for Jesus. You may not be sinless, but you need to be blameless. Let me say that again. You may not be sinless, but you need to be blameless. I'm reminded of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel the prophet, if you remember him, he was being promoted in the kingdom by the king. And there were other people that were jealous of him and they wanted to discredit him. They wanted to prevent him from being promoted. And so they all got together and the problem was they found no fault in him because he was above reproach. So let me read that scripture. It's in Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. And then these men got together and they said, we'll never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. Now that is a testimony to Daniel's integrity. And that is what you and I should strive for. A couple more, real fast. You look at their testimony. You look at their integrity. And number three, you look at their family. Look at verse six. An elder must be blameless. Again, that's the second time that word has happened. In verse seven, an overseer, he must be blameless. An elder, he must be blameless. The husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. I like what Lynn Anderson said. He said, if a man's life cannot stand the scrutiny of his wife and children, we dare not put our souls under his care. Adrian Rogers said it this way, if a man's not respected in his own home, don't export it. Think about that. If a man's not respected in his own home, don't export it. In other words, look at their family. Look at their marriage and look at their kids. And, uh, you know, let that be a litmus test when you look at their family. You know, Paul told Timothy the same thing. If a man can't manage his own household, why should he even lead the church? That's the whole uh, idea there. And so think about that. Let's go to the fourth one here. The fourth one is ministry. Ministry in verse 9. Going back to verse 9, I, I got half of it, but not all of it. Holding to the faithful message is taught. We talked about that. So that... He'll be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. In other words, 
an elder must be able to teach. Why? Because they've got to be able to use the Word of God to encourage people with sound teaching and refute those who oppose it or contradict it. Someone said an elder knows how to handle the Word of God by doing two things, by feeding the sheep and fighting the wolves. And that's true. By feeding the sheep and fighting the wolves. So let's bring all this down. Today I've looked at Scripture, and we've looked at a message, and many of you are going to say, you know what, I, I haven't heard much about an elder before, and I'm not even old, or I don't claim to be, and I don't think I'm going to be a leader of the church, so I, I, I'm kind of disappointed, preacher. Well, hang on, I'm not done yet. Give me five more minutes. You see, the, the spirit of this passage is about being an example to the flock. You know, Paul even told Timothy to set an example for believers even in your youth. If you are a follower of Christ, then you and I need to set an example for others. And the question becomes this, how can you and I be useful to God? Now, some of you, whether you're young or old, when you finally decide to grow up someday, you may want to be a godly mom or a godly dad or a godly grandparent. You may want to someday be able to be in a position to where you know how to lead someone to Christ, maybe a, a neighbor or a co-worker or a friend. Or, or maybe you want to someday, when you get to a certain point to where you want to give back, you want to be able to mentor other people and bring, show them the ropes and bring them along and provide some leadership to them that maybe you didn't get when you were their age in their particular stage of life. Well, here's what I want to ask you. If you aspire at any point in your life to leverage some godly influence to others, don't you think you need to be doing something about that now? You don't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to do this and expect it to happen. You've got to pursue that direction. You've got to make adjustments. You've got to make sure that God's uh, in your life and, and, you're, and you're following Him the way you should. I've got some... Uh, other verses I'm going to share, but I'll just share one. It's 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, where Paul told Timothy, have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. You and I need to train ourselves in godliness. And here's my takeaway for you today. How can you and I become a leader in the kingdom of God? How can we be an example to others and leverage our influence through our walk with Jesus? Well, you've seen this before. It's our disciple-making pathway, if you want to throw that up there, uh, that graphic. But this is, I think, where we all start. Do you know God? You know, you, you have to know the Lord. I mean, only what's done for Christ will last. And one of these days, we're all going to have to stand before Him. Do you know God? That is priority number one. Once you have come to know Christ and you know God, you know the Lord, you have a relationship with Him, then you need to find community. God has designed this life to where, you know, we as a church, we're the family of God. We're the body of Christ. We are interdependent with one another, but fully dependent on Him, and we need each other. And so we need to find community. We need to get connected, okay? We need to get connected. And then we serve others. Why? Because this life is not about ourselves. It's about serving others and making a difference. And then when we begin to serve others, we see God not only work 
in us but work through us, then we want to fulfill that mission, the Great Commission, the mandate of make disciples. And so what we're trying to do here at Pleasant Hill is to position every single person to be the leader that God wants you to be. And you might say, well, I don't consider myself to be a leader. Can I tell you something? I believe everybody has a certain measure of influence, and leadership is influence. There is somebody watching you. There's somebody that notices when you do something and when you don't. And to them, you're a leader. Why? Because you're an example. And your influence affects their life. And I don't know about you, but I want to follow Christ and I want to leverage my relationship with Christ to be a godly influence to others. And it's up to God how broad and how deep that goes. But that's what I want to do. And you and I ought to strive to do that. One last verse and I'll wrap this up. It's in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In other words, but when the kindness of God appeared, you know, all of us have a before Christ. Our life without Jesus This is who we were. But when we come to Jesus Christ, He saves us and He changes us. You've seen all those commercials on TV before, right? When they're trying to highlight a product. Here's before and this this is after. Wow, look at the change. Look at the difference. Well, if anybody should be talking about that, it should be Christians. Because the gospel can save anybody, whether Jew or Greek or even a Cretan somebody that is always lying, someone that is an evil brute, someone that is a lazy glutton. The gospel can save your life, can save your soul and radically change you. And then God uses you to be an example and a godly influence to others. And so today I want to encourage you, if you don't know the Lord, my prayer is that you will know the Lord. The very first thing we need to do is realize that God sent His Son and He died on a cross. That cross reminds us of what He did. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. I want to encourage you today, if you never took that first step, to turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then if you're a believer, then you thank God for your salvation, and then you begin to Find community in the church. Get connected to the body of Christ. Begin to serve others and make disciples. Now let me share this and I'll close. All of that that I just said, we've got a lot going on. Okay? Uh, We've got uh, Sunday school classes. Uh, We want you to find a place to plug in and get connected. When it comes to ministry opportunities, we've got Kentucky uh, Kentucky Changers coming up this summer. Uh, We've got a D-group mission trip in in Haiti that's tentatively planned. And speaking of making disciples, D-groups, two weeks, two weeks from this Sunday, we're going to have a church-wide D-group training in the fellowship hall, lunch provided. That's a sweet deal, by the way, okay? Lunch is provided, and we'll be done by 2 o'clock. We introduced D-groups about a year ago. 
We have about eight or nine of them. We have 30-something people in D groups, mostly in our church, some out in the community. And I would encourage you to consider being part of a D group. And, and, and if you have it already, I'd encourage you to sign up for the training. It doesn't obligate you. What it will do is it will inform you. You'll know exactly what we're talking about. And hopefully, it'll inspire you to say, hey, I'd like to try that. And so we've got all of these things coming up. And then on top of all that, I introduced something new today from the Scriptures. And whenever I introduce something new, I don't like confusion. I like clarity. And so starting this Wednesday night for the next 10 weeks, I'm going to do an in-depth Bible study on leadership in the church. We're going to look at what the Bible says about elders and deacons. And I hope you'll come and be a part of that. Well, let's all stand, musicians. Uh, if you'll come, we're going to have a time of invitation. And this is your time to respond to God. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this time when your people gather together, uh, call by your name to worship the name above all names. So, Father, I pray right now, Lord, have your will and your way in this invitation and in this service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.